Hi, this is Dr. Mercola, and welcome to our Take Control of Your Health podcast, in which we bring you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. This next interview is part of my Best of series, which features some of the most popular interviews with leading health experts. So thank you for listening. Now let's get started with this week's program to help you and your family take control of your health. Hi, this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today I am joined by Dr. Walter Longo, who is a professor of gerontology and biological sciences at the University of Southern California. He's also director of the Longevity Institute. So welcome and thank you for joining us today, Dr. Longo. Well, thank you. So can you describe what your fasting mimicking diet is? I mean, it seems there's all these benefits that are, are being ascribed to fasting. And I'm, I'm a per, I, initially, I wasn't that strongly in, in favor of that because I thought there was some negative, like many people, uh, some negative metabolic consequences. But it seems for most, it's such a powerful intervention. But it's not something you do the rest of your life, otherwise you'd be dead. So uh, t t describe to us your, uh, the evolution and what your fasting mimicking diet consists of. Yeah, so then the, the hypothesis was when we first started that also considering the negative effects we were seeing from the calorie restriction, let's say an immunity, maybe the response to uh, wounds, et cetera, we were thinking this cannot continue, as you just pointed out. You cannot be fasting all the time. You cannot even be calorie restricted all the time. So is it possible that if you do it once in a while, the body will have a memory of that metabolic switch and that will last a long time? And that was what we tested first in uh, simple organisms, uh, then in mice, uh, and it worked very well. So if you take mice at middle age and you give them with this periodic fasting, so if you put them four twice a month for four days on a diet that is about uh, that is restricted in proteins, restricted in uh, carbohydrates, but relatively high in fats. Um, then if for just four days, it's a low calorie, low protein, low sugar diet, essentially. Um, and then you switch them back to the normal diet. And actually it mm -hmm. turns out that they eat normally, right? Meaning that mm -hmm. they per month they consume, they're not restricted at all. They consume their uh, normal amount of food, and yet they have uh, about half of the tumors, and even the tumors they develop, they develop later, and uh, uh, and they see a lot of them seem to be benign. They're protected cognitively, so they are much better at performing various uh, cognitive tasks. Um, they have reduced inflammation, uh, and they have a longer uh, mean lifespan. They don't have a longer maximum lifespan, and we suspect that that is because um, the very old mice did not like it at all to, uh, to be fasting or to be on the fasting mimicking diet. And so uh, we think that uh, now, for example, with the human fasting mimicking diet, which I'll talk about in a second, um, we, we basically say after 70, we don't know yet. It doesn't mean that it may not be beneficial, but I think that we need to do more studies and maybe we need to come up with a higher calorie version of the fasting making diet, which now is about 50% calorie restricted, um, so that, uh, that we don't have the good and the bad after 70. There's no indication that before uh, there are any problems. And in fact, the mice, they were fairly old. They performed very well on the fasting making diet, but the very old ones uh, did not. 
Okay, so uh, would it be, so it's, you have essentially two four-day periods in a month or a little less than 30% of the time in a month where there's, they're going this calorie restricted, 50% less calories than they normally would take, but it's relatively low in protein and carbs and very high in high quality fats. Is that, is that a good summary of what you're doing? That's a mouse, right? The mouse study uh, was designed like that. Now, the human study is instead uh, less frequent, so it's five days a month, about the same uh, idea. So uh, very low sugar, um, high, relatively high complex carbohydrates, uh, low proteins, no animal products at all in it, high uh, levels of uh, good fats. Okay, and what types, and this is only five days once a month for the human version? Yes, in the clinical trial, we did uh, three cycles of this uh, once a month for five days, and then uh, we monitored, this was a randomized trial, and then we monitor people um, at the baseline, the beginning, before they started, during the diet, after, uh, and then a week after the third cycle, and then three months after the third cycle. And would would this type of intervention be enough to put most people who try this into ketosis? Yes, absolutely. So they they will temporarily be uh, in in ketosis, uh, but this will only last about three days or so. And uh, and also to us, it was important not to push uh, the patients uh, to areas that we did not quite understand as, as much as we would like. And so we felt that I felt that the five days uh, was an ideal time for compliance, but also for safety reasons. So most of these uh, individuals who, who try this are going to be in ketosis. Would this include you know, the typical American who is overweight, maybe by 50 pounds or so, and you know has, has a long history of eating the standard American diet, which is high in refined sugars and processed foods? Or would they require a longer time? Because I know some people who seek to just do simple water fasting with no calories seem to have a struggle for a while to get into into, uh, nutritional ketosis. Yes. uh, So we uh, wanted to, first of all, uh, reduce reduce the burden to the, the very lowest point. And so this is why on day one, for example, the human diet has got about 1,100 calories. Um, and, um, and this, I think, helped tremendously compared to, let's say, a water-only fasting uh, for compliance, also for safety. I mean, with a water-only fasting, uh, this should only be done in clinics. I mean, people do it outside of the clinic, but it doesn't mean it's a good idea. And um, so I think uh, in the five days, I think it was also important to give the sense to patients, especially the ones that are obese, like you just pointed out, that you only have to do this for five days. Then you go back to what it is that for you is so important. And this is, uh, I think, really key because um, uh, it just gradually uh, allows the patient to move into this idea of, spontaneously maybe even decide i don't need that sugar that much sugar anymore because i was five days without it and now yes i still want it but maybe i can reduce a little bit and uh so we're seeing that a lot it's a slow process but uh, in addition to the long-lasting effects is also some of the behavioral changes that may occur when you can at least do this for five days sure well and also if they 
shifted more towards burning fat as their primary fuel, then they're going to uh, have the ability to reduce their cravings quite dramatically because they are burning fat and they're not craving the sugar as much. When you can't burn fat, I mean, you have to have something for fuel. Your body requires and demands it. And then if most people are using carbohydrates to supply that fuel, then they're going to feel miserable. But when they made that shift, it's going to be a little bit easier. So I think that helps helps in the whole process. Uh, and and I'm, I'm particularly intrigued because I really am fond of what you're doing and I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, why don't you just describe what metabolically goes on during this fast? I think we alluded to it earlier with respect to the autophagy, mitophagy, uh, rebuilding, cellular repair, improvement of IGF-1 hormones, and then the magic that truly occurs. I mean, that's sort of a negative. It's like what exercise is, is good for you overall, but it, initially it actually damages the muscle tissue. So similarly, uh, when you're fasting, you're you're actually uh, in some ways damaging yourself. But the magic, I believe, occurs is when you, in this refeeding phase, when you're actually rebuilding the cell. Can you just so can you describe that process? Yeah. So the the process um, I think is is really comprehensive, meaning almost everything changes. This is why I tell uh, patients, uh, you know, work with a doctor, be careful because. This is, really changes your body in a way that almost nothing else. I mean, nothing that I can that I can think of. So, uh, for example, the IGF-1 goes way down, the glucose goes way down, the ketone bodies uh, go are elevated or greatly elevated, and the reason is, as you pointed out, that the body starts burning fat, and it turns out that instead of burning all fats, it burns the, primarily the visceral fat, right? So. Uh, and this is a really important point. We really didn't see much of a significant or a significant difference in the subcutaneous fat. We saw a significant difference in the abdominal fat, um, indicating that um, uh, this is this is coming mostly from one source. Maybe this is the reservoir that where the uh, the body goes first uh, when uh, when the glucose is not coming in. And uh, and then I think uh, um, the uh, the clearance of the damaged cell is also uh, very very important. Now we've shown this for uh, in a mouse and human preliminary multiple sclerosis trial, which um, in which we were able to show that each cycle of the fasting vegan diet is able to kill some of the autoimmune cells, and then turn on the stem cell and regenerate cells that are no longer autoimmune. Uh, now the the human trial is still preliminary, but certainly it was uh, uh, is, is very promising, especially when you consider that, like in the mouse, we saw tempor a temporary reduction, which is counterintuitive, but temporary reduction of the white blood cells in the patients. Right, so over seventy percent of the patients had over twenty percent of uh, reduction in white blood cell number. But that told us that it's working in people like it's working in mice. So the system tries to save. And maybe some redistribution, but also we believe killing uh, of white blood cells, turning on hematopoietic stem cells, and then when you refeed, and only when you refeed, uh, this is now the stem cells are now giving rise to uh, to uh, young and functional uh, white blood cells. But we now, at least in the mice, we have evidence that this happens everywhere. But also the clinical, the human clinical trial supports the, the notion that this is also happening everywhere in the human body. 
So, you know, what? one of the factors that really intrigued me with your work was this focus on cycling. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, there's many benefits from fasting or calorie restriction, but the, there's there's no way you want to do that indefinitely. It's going to be highly counterproductive. So I'm wondering similarly if there's this Goldilocks window of protein. We just finished just describing the downside of excess protein, but even if you had an optimal protein or you minimize the activation of the TOR pathway with sort of the opt what you're you know, the one gram per kilogram of lean body mass of protein intake. Do you, th now the, the, this, the, the Goldilocks window I'm referring to is this balance that we have between losing lean muscle mass as we age or sarcopenia and sort of keeping the optimized activation level of TOR. So do you think there's a benefit to going to high levels of protein, maybe 1.5, two grams per kilogram, uh, for a short period, maybe a day when you're doing strength training exercises and go into this cycling method. And it's sort of a similar cycling that you're doing with the the, the um, fast, fasting mimicking diet. Yes, I think so. Uh, there is a number of groups that are looking at uh, the relationship between protein and muscle uh, synthesis, uh, muscle protein synthesis. And I think they've clearly shown, for example, that 30 grams or so of proteins are needed in one single meal associated with strength training uh, for, in order for the uh, muscle uh, protein synthesis uh, to occur. And so, um, yeah, I will say that there is an optimal, uh, optimal level. Uh, now, we have also, in the paper that I mentioned earlier, we've shown that there were, uh, before 65 and after 65 groups, meaning that people that were 65 and younger benefited from the very low protein, but people that were 65 and older did not benefit. And so we suspect that um, that is because in the 70, 80 year old, uh, that extreme level of protein intake, extremely low level of protein intake may not be as beneficial. Now, the study, the correct study has never been done, meaning mm -hmm. that there's never been a study where you take a, a number, you know, a thousand healthy 80 year olds and you give them exactly a low level of proteins and you see how they do compared to the ones they eat 1.5 to 2 grams per kilogram a day. Uh, so I suspect they will still do better um, because usually when these studies are done, you do a survey, but among the people that report having low protein are people that are sick, people that are frail, people that are malnourished, and you bunch them all together. So you might have 10% that are super healthy, but 90% they have problems, right? So it's amazing already that even before 65, that group performs better or much better than the well-nourished uh, group. But uh, so anyway, yeah, so most likely the lower, uh, later in life, higher protein intake is better, but uh, a very high protein intake is probably still detrimental. And so there was no evidence in our study that the people that had the high protein intake, even at older ages, did better. Uh, it, it was sufficient to do moderate protein intake, even in older ages. All right, so that's good. So I know the studies haven't been done, but I'm wondering from your understanding of the molecular biology of it, if it still makes sense to do this, after you're older, 65 or 70, to do this pulsing version, especially integrated with a weight strength training exercise program. So not to have high protein or higher protein every day, but to have higher levels. And perhaps I was not familiar with the 30 grams per meal, you know, when, uh, 
intake, you know, on those days that you're doing the strength training. So maybe two, three days a week, maybe four days a week. Uh, would that make more sense? And then go back to the lower versions. So do this pulse. I mean, this pulsing seems to be key to, to biological health. Yes, but that study, not just one study, many studies have shown that it doesn't really make any difference if you have 30 grams or 60 grams in that one meal. There is equivalent muscle building effects, right? So mm -hmm. the 30 grams optimized, they had a, a, a amount of leucine that was required in the, in the 30 grams. So the quality of the protein does matter there, but they showed how, how that. Gra it was how, many grams of, how many grams of leucine? And would it make a difference now, if there's a high amount of branched chain amino acids in, the, in that? Would you need less? Uh, yeah, I don't remember the exact number, but they were talking about leucine as being the key activator mm -hmm. of TOR and TOR being uh, important, tr so tr uh, an important trigger for the building process. So they were saying, they basically published that once you push TOR and you start the process, 30 grams are all you need. It doesn't matter whether you have three times as much. Now, if you do that twice, you might get that building twice, occurring twice. So if you do it in the morning and then you do it at night, then, then of course, that makes a difference. But uh, so this is what the study is pretty clearly shown. So yeah, by uh, answering your question, the pulses are key because that's all that matters. You just have to have enough proteins, TOR activation, the building process occurs, and then you know, that's long lasting. Uh, and so if you just did that once a day, uh, it would probably be sufficient uh, to, uh, to keep a good uh, muscle mass. Now they haven't done long studies on this, so mm -hmm. we don't know uh, how to best do it. But certainly the short term studies indicate that you don't need a high, very high protein, but you do need sufficient protein and you need the training uh, to optimize uh, mm -hmm. the muscle building. I've sort of stumbled onto a process that I call feast famine cycling, which is somewhat similar to what you're doing. But I, I engage personally engaged in long-term, you know, by six months or so of, of chronic ketogenic nutritional ketosis. Uh, and I started noticing some adverse side effects. Uh, and uh, I think it's probably related to the mechanism of the action of, action of insulin, which uh, many people aren't aware of, but when you have, the, re, the way insulin works is not by driving glucose into the cells, that's what's conventionally taught, but it really low works by stopping the liver's ability to produce glucose. So if you have very low levels of insulin, you're going to suppress, you're not going to be able to suppress hepatic gluconeogenesis and your blood sugars paradoxically, even though you're not having any carbohydrates will rise pretty dramatically because your body wants that high level of sugar. So interestingly, the, when you have really a relatively high uh, glucose level and you have really low insulin levels, if you eat sugar, your blood sugar drops, which is absolutely counterintuitive, but but it's mm -hmm. related to the mechanism of insulin. So uh, that's when it became really clear to me once I understood that that you really have to do this cycling. And the only way, because you, if you, re you really do want to keep your glucose level low, uh, but you know if you do if you do too much of the glucose restriction. And protein restriction, you'll you'll actually it'll be counterproductive. So this this cycling is absolutely imperative, and I think that that is the key to optimizing uh, the whole molecular pathways that are involved in in chronic disease and longevity. Yeah, and, and I think you know you you you, uh, uh, you you hit it right in the head, uh, meaning that if you understand the mechanisms, 
like you just described. I mean, this is really important. This is essential, right? You have to understand exactly what goes on. Because if you don't, then you're going to get surprises. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you were surprised after six months that yeah. you're starting to see some problems, you know. And, and I, I've also seen some of that, for example, in the alternate day uh, fasting, uh, sort of some papers showing uh, benefits, but there's some papers showing detrimental effects, right? It just up, up and down, up and down may not be uh, doing this all the time, may not be uh, also not such a good idea. I don't know. I'm not saying I'm not yeah, talking we, against it. I'm just right. saying that, that you need studies and you need mechanisms. And uh, until those are available, I, I would warn people to be very careful because uh, it, it, could, uh, it could give you surprises. And another uh, philosophy that I resonated with that you have is uh, basically that a little bit of knowledge is dangerous. And by that, I'm referring to the use of uh, drugs, specifically metformin and rapamycin, which we know have beneficial effects and may be useful agents in certain disease states, but to be used prophylactically by those who are seeking to extend their lifespan may not be a wise idea. And, and But you see a lot of people recommending and endorsing these strategies, and I just cringe when I hear it. But I, I was just overjoyed to hear your perspective on this, which was, don't do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I think that when whether it's metformin or rapamycin, I mean, we discovered the TOR pathway in aging, so we would have loved to say, oh, take rapamycin every day, which is a TOR inhibitor. But uh, uh, I, I always thought from the very beginning, we actually had the first data on, on, on rapamycin in 1997. We never even published it. And the reason was that we felt it's so central to the cell. How can it be that you block something so central and it just does good and no bad at all, right? And I, I couldn't believe it. And then... 2009 came and the mouse studies came and still no negative. And then you started seeing all the negative studies, hyperglycemia, cataract accumulation, uh, uh, testicular degeneration, et cetera, et cetera. So after the good news came the bad news. And, uh, and I think that's what people underestimate that when you, when you have a, a sophisticated blockade, but very unsophisticated effect, which is completely block an enzyme, uh, that's that's most likely going to have bad effects sooner or later. Yeah, and I think part of that, those side effects that were described were related to the chronic, uninterrupted use of those at relatively high doses to completely suppress it. So that maybe, you know, just like we're talking about cycling, that the smaller doses and done intermittently might have some benefits. But certainly, it seems to be far wiser, safer, less of, less expensive, and, and far less side effects is to do it with your with your food. <laughs> I think so. I think so. Also, because there is a, a long, long history of use by large clinics, uh, the Buchinger Clinic in Germany, the True North Clinic in the United States. I mean, the, these clinics uh, see six, seven year, and they do much more severe restriction for much longer times. And, uh, and so the safety record, at least according to them, is extremely good. So, so that was really reassuring for us. I mean, we, we felt that we had to do the clinical trials, but certainly it was good to know there's thousands and thousands of people that do much more severe intervention every year and they're fine. So I'm, I'm wondering if, uh, I have two questions for you with respect to aging, is if you could give, as a, an aging longevity researcher, if you could provide your best recommendation f- 
for what to do now on that. And it would just be essentially reading your book on uh, the longevity diet that, that will hopefully be published in the United States soon. And then, well, let's answer the next question. I have a follow-up question for that. Yeah, yeah. And also, before the book comes out, I have a Facebook, uh, Professor Walter Longo page that people can go uh, to, uh, to, uh, to get updates. But the key, uh, the pescatarian diet that I already described is definitely key. Uh, low protein, but sufficient. Two phases of life. So when you get older, uh, keep them a normal weight and be highly nourished. Uh, even if you have to add to your diet uh, more ingredients that might not have uh, been part of your diet before. For example, I started talking in the book about some cheeses that all these centenarian population around the world, like goat cheese and uh, uh, that you know you may not uh, have to want to use uh, frequently when you're younger, but you can use when you're older, or maybe some yogurt, uh, or maybe some eggs, right? So th some of these things are excluded before 65, 70. But then I say, you know, they're they're really very rich in, in nutrition, and a lot of centenarians do it, so it might be a good idea. The other thing uh, I talk about is 12 hours, uh, 12 hours on, 12 hours off on food, meaning that. Um, yeah, you could do 8 and 16, meaning you only eat for 8 hours a day and then you fast for 16. But I think it's too extreme. There is some data that some studies suggesting increased gallstone uh, uh, incidence. And so 12 and 12 is probably a very good uh, compromise. And I always like that to say, let's get the benefits, but let's not risk the, the negatives, right? And 12 and 12 is really a, a good thing to do, especially if you tend to gain weight. Uh, and then I also introduced the concept of two meals a day, two major meals a day uh, for people that tend to gain weight or overweight and, and three meals a day instead for the people that uh, don't have that problem or tend to lose weight. So that's also very important that, uh, that uh, you know, the, the abdominal fat uh, is uh, regulated and, uh, um, and, you know, and just the, the overall weight uh, stays healthy, both not being underweight or overweight. So those are the, the major recommendations. And the high nourishment, I also, for example, give simple uh, advices on take a multivitamin every three days. Why every three days? Because probably every day, you never know, maybe you eventually we'll, we'll find out that that's not good for you. Some studies suggest that. But every three days, it probably eliminates uh, most of malnourishment. Uh, and at the same time, the chance that it does you damage is, is extremely low considering how many studies have been done on them and showing usually neutral effects. So do you think there's any concern about using intermittent fasting long-term or should that also be cycled up? Well, I mean, intermittent fasting usually refers to every other day fasting or, or this fasting oh, I'm sorry, that's, a good, you do. that's yeah. a good question. Let me, let me be more precise with my question. By intermittent fasting, I'm referring to the 12 to, to six eight hour window of of uh, restricting your calorie ingestion too but that yeah. but that's my term so so time, some people can you do that long term or do you should you cycle that up too uh, no no i mean the 12 and 12 is what people have always done right so it's called okay. timer city feeding but if you look at centenarians uh, whether it's loma linda or okinawa or the southern italians the people that are most successful uh, almost unanimously they have they uh, contain their uh, feeding period within 12 hours. So 8 a.m., 8 p.m., I think that the chance that that is going to cause problems is extremely low. Now, if you go to eight hours, it's different, right? Now you start to say 8 a.m. to 4 p.m., 
well, it could, it could not have any effects or maybe it is a contributor to this weight loss that a lot of older people have, mm -hmm. which usually is associated with frailty. So I don't think it's such a good idea. And, and again, uh, if after 65, 70, people tend to lose weight, I think it's better to increase the, the food intake, uh, making sure that a healthy weight is maintained. And some of these things are way uh, underestimated, the, the importance of them. Okay, good. So the, the, the next question to that with respect to the, the meals, uh, I, I've come to believe from, from a molecular perspective on studying the mitochondria that it may be unwise to have your largest meal uh, certainly before you go to bed, but even later in the day, and that the, ideally the best the time, timing for your largest meal of the day or the greatest amount of calories would be before your biggest activity. So for most people, that's going to be either in the morning or at, at, at noon. But to, you know, when people eat a large dinner, and sometimes socially there's not, a, there's not really a practical alternative. They come home to their family, they're going to eat at 6, 7 o'clock at night, and then they just watch TV and go to bed. And I'm not sure that that's the wisest strategy for optimizing longevity. Yes, it, it probably is not, but in the book I talk about staying about four hours away, having about four hours from your last meal to your sleep time, uh, and as long as it doesn't bother you. So if you keep it four hours away and you don't have reflux or other problems, I think it's fine. Uh, I, I did not see any evidence for that being a problem or any evidence that shortens your life. Um, but for most people, this could be a problem. And then I think you're right, uh, a larger lunch. And this is very typical among centenarians to have a large lunch and very small and early uh, uh, dinner. Okay, great. And then I'm wondering, again, as your uh, interest, 50% of your research is in longevity, if you have, and you're involved in, in networking with all the other researchers that are doing this. So do what do you see as a, a promising, maybe yet not a properly uh, researched intervention, but the most promising intervention that you could uh, suggest that is on the lies on the horizon that might be able to be utilized in the near future? I think uh, time-restricted feeding, so that uh, is restricting the, the time of uh, feeding, the work by Sachin Panda and others, uh, I think is the most promising. And, um, and of course, uh, metformin, I think it'd be very nice once near Barzilla and others that are studying it uh, come up with a large thousands of people studies. That would be very interesting, especially because at least a percentage of the people are not going to be able to do either time-restricted feeding or periodic fasting or fasting-making diet. So I think for them, maybe metformin, if it turns out not to have side effects after you do it for 20 years, uh, maybe that's a good uh, option. But okay. we'll have to wait and see. All right. Well, I think I finished my questions, and I'm wondering if you have anything you'd like to emphasize or uh, some a topic to review that I haven't already uh, asked you about. No, I think uh, the main thing is to work with uh, uh, established products, and but also uh, doctors uh, and nutritionists uh, and dietitians uh, to make sure that uh, the power of these diets is not underestimated. I think a lot of people think that uh, they can do it at home; they can just cook it up. And, and we've seen uh, both in Italy and the United States, a lot of people ending up in the doctor's office with a lot of problems because of that. Okay, good. And uh, we'll definitely keep posted on your new book. And uh, any idea when it's going to be out in 2017 in the United States? 
I hope by the end of the summer. Uh, okay. But again, if people go to the Professor Walter Longo Facebook uh, site, and uh, it, I'll give them an update on, uh, okay. on you know our papers when we publish things, and also when the book is going to come out. Perfect. So that's the best way to keep in touch with what your research is doing is your Facebook page, Professor Walter Longo. Walter Longo with a Walter. V. V. Yeah, but that, not with the W, with the V. All right. Well, thank you for all your research. I greatly appreciate the time and opportunity to capture a portion of what you've been learning for the past few decades. It's always a privilege to connect with people who, like you, are so committed to uh, uncovering some of the details of what it takes to be optimally healthy. My pleasure. Thank you very much.